Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and geopolitics. These SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews we've been doing during the work from home period uh, with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we've really tried to do during SALT Talks is to replicate the experience that we provide at our global conference series, the SALT Conference. Uh, which is provide a window into the minds of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for big ideas, big important ideas that we think are changing the world. Uh, we're very excited today to welcome Katan Patel to Salt Talks. Katan might not be a household name like some of the other investors uh, that you've heard on Salt Talks, but I think he'll be among the most interesting uh, and informational guests that we'll have on Salt Talks. Uh, Katan is the author of The Master Strategist, and he's the former head of the strategic group at Goldman Sachs. Uh, he's worked extensively in the US, Europe, China, Japan, and India principally, uh, providing strategic counsel both to uh, public entities as well as private companies. He founded and leads the investment firm Greater Pacific Capital. And with his partners, they invest in high growth enterprises, making an impact locally in India and internationally in a profitable and sustainable way. Uh, he leads the firm's influential research work, which focuses on ideas and policies to engender peace, prosperity, and freedom. That work includes uh, writings about the rise and fall of civilizations, of great power, of the changing and evolving world order, and the shape of the world to come, including mass inclusion and the eradication of slums, especially in India, which I know is a cause that's near and dear to Katan's heart. Katan also works with the UN World Academy of Art and Science Global Leadership Initiative. Uh, where he leads their project on leadership and the future of finance. He's a member of the Future Capital Group and leads uh, their project on the future of capital. Uh, Katan is of Indian descent, but he grew up in London's East End, uh, and as well as spending some time in India during his upbringing. And he actually moved to New York on 9-11, which maybe he'll touch on uh, during the introduction. His grandfather walked on the Salt March and his parents uh, moved to London, which was the center of, of great power in their early days. Uh, he, he is an avid uh, practicer, practitioner of meditation. Uh, it's part of his diet alongside running art, history, and science fiction. I know that meditation is sort of uh, interwoven into his mindset and, and his philosophy. If you do not already subscribe to his great newsletter, I would highly recommend that you do that. You can go to greaterpacificcapital.com. The newsletter is called Sign of the Times. And again, I would highly recommend it uh, to get more of the type of perspective that you're going to hear from Katan today. If you have questions for Katan during today's talk, a reminder to enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. Uh, and now I'm going to turn over uh, the interview to Anthony Scaramucci, who's going to interview Katan. Anthony, as you likely know, is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm, as well as the chairman of SALT. Uh, and with that, I'll kick it over to Anthony. Katan, I thought I was doing bad on Room Raider until I saw your background there. Okay? <laughs> and so now John Darcy, unfortunately, wins Room Raider again on Salt. But uh, it's one of those rough things for both of us. I, I want to start with your family of origin because I think you have one of the more fascinating stories. And it's such a great success story. So tell us a little bit about your parents and your educational process and how you got to where you are today, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure, Anthony. Hey, look, first, thank you for inviting me. Uh, thanks, John, for that glowing introduction. I don't know how you put all that together, but that was really interesting. Um, Anthony, so uh, 
as you as you said, I'm, I'm uh, of Indian origin. Um, I'm British. You can tell by the accent. My grandfather would have uh, been a young man, and my father a very young man, when the British were still running the world. So you know they looked to Britain as the great power of their day. Uh, my my grandfather walked on the Salt March, nothing to do with the Salt Conference or the Salt Talks, but the Great Salt March, uh, which was the Independence March led by Mahatma Gandhi. Um, as I understood it later, he was quite severely beaten during that march at some point too. Uh, my parents moved to London um, for opportunity. Um, my father was an engineer. Um, we were fairly poor and just came to appreciate the hard work that goes into building a family um, and came to appreciate and completely love the UK. Um, I grew up in, in London's East End, which was rough in those days. Uh, I recognize some of the race rights and complaints now and happening all around the world in the protests and all the counter protests and so on as part of my growing up. Um, I also grew up in uh, Gujarat, uh, which is where Gandhi came from and the current Prime Minister of India came from. Um, East London, I've got to admit, was a tougher neighborhood, uh, tough, difficult neighborhood. Uh, but I think we learned a lot from, from that neighborhood. So um, we, did, we did well. We, we, we were some, one of the few that went to college from that neighborhood. I've had careers in industry and in consulting and in banking was um, lastly at Goldman Sachs, um, running this group called the Strategic Group. It was fantastic. You travel the world, you meet world leaders, um, in uh, country leaders, um, as well as business leaders. And you talk about the future of the world and their strategies, and you find the opportunities for Goldman, uh, which were many. So it was, it was a wonderful learning experience. It was also great to leave, though, and set up my own firm with a bunch of friends, um, and we're investors. Um, we'll get on to 9-11 at some point, which was an, an awful time. It was my first day really moving to New York. Uh, it was my actual first day. Um, it, it made me completely empathetic to America and really care about America and its standing in the world and really strive to understand what the world was about and uh, what American power was about and why things happened as they did all over the world. So, well, let, let, let's go to 9-11, if you don't mind, because I think this is a fascinating part of your story. And I think it ties back into context that you can provide about world leaders, uh, Great Britain, its rise and the eventual rise of the United States after the British Empire. Mm -hmm. uh, but take us back to 9-11, take us back to your first days in New York, and tie that thread from your, your father's upbringing and the liberation of India to where we are now in terms of America on, its world, on the world stage. Sure. So, you know, I'm a student of this and fascinated with this topic. So, you know, what I've seen is that as we do the analysis, and we look at 30 empires or so in history, and we're about to publish something again on this, but you see that every empire has a curve, a rise and fall. Um, and it's, it's something mathematically you could compute. And then you could look at America and say, when is America no longer going to be a great power? And I think 9-11 was one of those important turning points where America, in my time, was the greatest power of all time. As far as we could see, looking at history, it was the great power. It, it saved, and it was a morally strong power because it had saved the world in two wars. It put a man on the moon. It defeated communism. It built all the international institutions we rely on today with its allies, of course. You know, it safeguarded the world after the war to look after peace, um, establish human rights as such an important power 
or force in the world. And uniquely, it was the first power, great power, not to think it had to conquer people's lands uh, using armies, but it, it did conquer the world and it conquered it through investments, through trade, through growth, uh, through its corporations, uh, through investment banks. Uh, but it didn't have to kill people in large numbers to do so. So it was, it was very unique. Um, and it, it was clearly something that we all looked at as what, what we thought was the right way to live. Democracy, some form of capitalism, free trade. You know, these were things that were the cornerstones of the building of America. And 9-11 seemed to shake that up a bit. But the 20th century America was the one of raw energy, invention. You know, Anthony, everyone looked at it and said, this is what we want to be. And that's, it's what led China, I think, to start its reforms, of course. Spent a lot of time in China um, and looking at policy in China, looking at business and investing in China. The 21st century was so different from the 20th century America. You, know, you had 9-11, then the global financial crisis. Uh, then you had the rise of populism in, in America, but also in other parts of the world. You had America first, which to most of us felt like America alone. Um, you had America trying to break up the EU by encouraging Britain to leave the EU and only offering the deal if they did on trade. Um, America internally divided, um, a horrible racial divide too. And now the performance on the pandemic. Um, now you can't trace it all back to one event or any event really. These are changes that sweep over time and they're part of probably the natural cycle of rise and fall of great powers. It was personal for me because 9-11 was the first day, really working day, of my move to New York. And um, I saw the second plane go in from my office. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's very poignant. Um, Goldman did say to me, you can move back uh, to London or to, to anywhere else you like. And um, I thought that was wrong. And so I said, no, I want to stay because we should decide how we live and not the people that did this. So it was an important moment. Um, so, yeah. Um, well, I mean, in, in your writings, you talk about, and I want to see if I get this right, uh, a quadrennial leadership. Is that the right way to describe it? Quadlateral leadership? Yeah, quadrilateral leadership. Quadrilateral leadership. And so you're basically saying there are four powers right now that are tugging on the world in terms of the restatement of the world order. And I was wondering if you could describe that to our viewers and listeners. Sure. So look, the world has changed and the pandemic has actually highlighted a lot of weaknesses of America and its system. And we should come back to that, but the, those lay the ground for, for so many changes. The, the, the change in the relationship between America and China, uh, is accelerated by that, the change in the relation between China and the rest of the world. Um, the rise of India at this time is, is quite significant, and especially in the context of the importance of Asia, again, topics we can touch on. Um, but the quadrilateral powers are, are, are fascinating because there are now really four power blocks that really determine where the trade is, where GDP is, um, where the populations are, what the where the consumption power is and so on. So something like um, 50 to 60% of the world's population, nearly 70% actually of GDP, of arable land, of oil consumption, and the world's industries lie between these four major power blocks. 
and about 40% of world trade lies with these four too. So you know, if anyone's gonna set the rules of engagement, it's gonna be set by the interaction between these four power blocks. America's had a period where it's, it's managed to call the rules of engagement and been the one leading the way and people have been happy to follow. But in the 21st century, that changed. And I think it changed with 9-11, but also with, um, more, more importantly, probably with the global financial crisis. And the pandemic in particular has exposed so much about America's system that I think it could be one of the most important turning points in some ways where people look at America and say, I did not think that America was vulnerable in that way. And so it may be the, the moment at which the world began to question, really question, the idea of America as the world leader. So, so, so let's let's address that because uh, you, you've got two Americans uh, on, on the call with you. Uh, we've grown up, unfortunately or fortunately, in an American-centric world, at least from from our perspective. Uh, but both of us have also traveled the world, and and we see the way the world sees America. And so, take us through your thought process. How did the world see America after World War II? How did the world see America, say, in the 1990s when our old boss, Bob Rubin, was Secretary of the Treasury? Yeah. Uh, how does the world see America today? And so take us through those time slices and your observation as a global citizen. So as a global citizen, I'd say, you know, firstly, I, just like both of you, having worked, lived in America, I find myself empathetic, compassionate to America. And as I look across, it, you know, even before the world wars, thinking what was the nature of world leadership, I think America has been a benevolent leader. You know, it has it shaken what people thought you had to do to run the world. Um, because of its innovation and its enterprising nature and the nature of its trade and the relationship it's built as this great merchant empire. I think World War II was a moment where it rose to help the world through two of the most important crises in the world. And then as the ideological battle kind of continued after that war with the Soviet Union, it, it demonstrated its economic, political, social system, if you like, was the most powerful system in the world. And you know, it presided over, therefore, a long battle of wits really, um, and much more of course, but wits with the Soviet Union and well. And so all of us grew up, I think, uh, on this phone call, certainly in, uh, between the three of us on this panel, of people who saw America as the leader, as the leader who showed the way. And it was, I think China, all my time in China, I saw China looking at America saying, now that's what we want to be. And the way to get there is to open up embrace trade based on the comfort we have, then open up more of our industries, open up to investment, begin even democracy experiments, which they did, and plot a path to becoming something more like America. And so that was the values of America were the values that the world embraced. Um, particularly, I think, um, at the end of the last century and the beginning of this. And I, I think that was the cornerstone of what everyone thought was America. At some point, it was clear, though, that you know, that wasn't the only American. America was also in a transition. Um, and inside America, there were issues that would affect the whole world. Um, 
those issues, unfortunately, were not solved inside America and burst out onto the international scene. And you know, people saw that America was strong enough to elect um, a black president in President Obama, and in some ways put the rest of the world to shame that no one else had managed to do something so profound as to say, you know, anybody can make it regardless of color or creed or, and so on. So, you know, we looked at that and we thought, wow, see, that, that can happen in America. It's a long way away from the rest of us. Um, and then how that then transpired and where it led to and the election of the current president, I led everyone to say, wow, that's a, that country is different from what we thought. And so, you know, if you look at the statistics, and there is so much good research done, and some of the best actually is done by Pew Research, which is American, and more than 50% of the world have a favorable opinion still of America. It's very consistent through presidencies. I think it's 54%. Um, but 60 to nearly 70% do not have confidence in the current president and disapprove of America's position on trade, on climate change, on building walls, and so on. So the values of America are beginning to be quite fundamentally questioned. And then you lay on top of that the pandemic, and then people start to wonder whether America is actually capable of leading the world. You know, and again, stepping right back, if, if we said the world was posed, you know, posed a test, and it was posed to every single country, no matter how small or how big you were, how rich or how poor, how educated or uneducated, whether you were in the North or the South, it didn't really matter. Every country gets the same test. And every leader in every country with their leadership group um, and their system have to figure out how to pass two parts of the test. You've got to keep your economy going as much as you can, and you've got to save lives. And when we do the score, America comes pretty much towards the bottom of the league table. I mean, that's unheard of, right? America saved everybody in all these wars, in every crisis. How can America not save its own people economically um, and from dying? You know, it's just not tenable to imagine that the world power could end up in that place. And I think this is the shock and the dismay of people around the world, that America is so internally divided and is so populist and reject some of the tenets of what is great leadership internally and externally that has not managed to come top of the league table um, when everyone looked to America to lead. I think once you get used to not being led though, um, things change and I think things change potentially forever. And so this is, a, this is I think the important challenge that America now faces that in its last great crisis, this one, we're in now still, America so far has not managed to lead. Tom, I want to pivot. I want to pivot to Asia okay. for a moment um, and start with China. So you touched on China briefly, and for all of our our audience's sake, we talked about some of the work you've done internationally. But you have particularly strong relationships in China as well as in India, and obviously you're based in London, and you are well schooled on Europe as well. But when you talk about the the power struggle between the U.S. and China. Is it a zero-sum game? Is it a winnable struggle for the United States, uh, both from an economic and a sort of philosophical and governance perspective? And if it is a winnable struggle, what does victory look like for the United States and how do they do that? So um, it's a tough one now because, you know, you, you began the fight, really America began the fight with recognition that China was a threat to its leadership 
probably during, most probably during the George W. Bush era, continued over the Obama era and has continued and stepped up during the Trump era. Um, but China has had a, a decade, a decade and a half, and particularly while America was, was spending time on two wars in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, China almost had a free reign to go around the world and tie up natural resources, to build relationships, to build ports, um, you know, to, to freely do that while the superpower was occupied. So um, the rise of China has been relentless and the tying up of natural resources and relationships in the absence of real competition has been also relentless. Um, and it's not done from the perspective necessarily of China wanting to run the world. I think it's because China recognizes 1.3 billion people. There's a lot of mouths to fill. You know, so you, you have to, you know, to, to feed that many people to keep stability, to continue their progress. They have to go around the world and take lots of resources and assets. And so if, if you look at China under communism, you know, it would have had a GDP per capita of, you know, $1,000. And then, you know, there was a period between 2000 and 2006 when they already opened up, they'd entered the WTO, they were going through rapid growth, and America recognized pretty much probably as the British did when they were looking at America. They recognized that here was another great country that you need to help, and you help into the system, and you, you train them in the system and how it works. And in that, that period, China's, um, China doubled its, its uh, GDP per capita. And then in the late period leading up to the end of the first decade of the century, you know, it was hitting close to $6,000, $5,000, $6,000 per capita. So it was already doing a really good job. And in the Xi period, you know, it's gone from five or 6,000 to nearly $10,000 per capita. Now, you know, America's at 60 to $70,000 per capita on average, which masks a lot of people who are nowhere near that. But if that's the average, just as China's masks a lot, um, China's probably a hyperpower at $25,000 because they have 1.3 billion people. So it's got four times the population of America. Um, to, hit, to have them on an average of $25,000 means that you're, a, you're more than a superpower. You have an, a superbly crafted machine that can weight everything in its favor in terms of trade, economics, um, probably a good contender to replace the dollar. It's already begun an experiment with an electronic version of the RMB. So you know, this is a serious contender to run the world. And again, looking back in history, you know, in, in the wake of every major empire was another great power rising steadily under its wing, ready to take over. And America was that for the British. And China potentially is that. Now, you, know, you asked a very important question. You know, can you slow that down? Can you stop it? Can you thwart it? Um, America demonstrated it could do that to the USSR. Could it do it to China? I, I think it could do because there are clear fault lines in China's political system, its economic system, its over-indebtedness. There's an internal divide between the haves and have not. Out of 1.3 billion people, maybe only a third, less than that maybe, have actually experienced this, this great wave of China's rise. Um, and during the pandemic, China's failed to win and build on the trust that it was slowly trying to build. And so whether it's Europeans, Australia, India, you know, people have spoken out and said, we, we don't trust China. I actually don't think that's good for the world. Um, 
a, a, you know, one way to do this in terms of the way forward would be to find the win-win where China slowed down a little bit. America was still the older brother, helping China to figure out the system, um, allow the values to align, which may take two or three decades. Um, and at some point, you know, you have a sharing of power. It seems unlikely that's gonna happen. Um, and so there's another way, which is the way that America has tried before, where you exploit the fault lines of, of arrival and you see if you can break up or divide that country. I think that's gonna be very difficult too. So it's, it's more likely that we end up at a sharing of power between America, China, India, which is rising again very rapidly, um, and Europe and the EU rather than Europe. So four big power blocks. And America's a natural ally for the EU and a natural ally for India. And so, you know, in that quadrilateral system, there's three powers that are probably very aligned. Unfortunately, not in the last four or five years and on the basis of their, their values. And so that needs some resetting, some serious resetting. You touched on India and that's a natural transition. Why is India's growth so important for the United States and for the world? And how does it fit in the context of the rise of Asia generally? Sure. So. Now, if you look at, uh, I'm going to start again with China on that, because um, if you look at China's growth, um, what you find is China under communism took 50 years almost to get to a trillion dollar economy, and then seven years to get to two trillion, five years to get to three trillion. And all of us look at that and we say, of course, it's because it's communism, it's autocratic, it's top down, you know, it, it, they were bound to do it. They started 15 years ago or so, really in the reforms, but they did it, of course. You look at 20 years ago, maybe. you look at India and you say, of course they can't do that because of democracy. Uh, but here are the numbers. So India, under post-independence, took 50 years, while it was still a socialist country, to get to a trillion dollar economy. Very same, you know, same as China's 50 years through communism. Seven years to get to two trillion. And this is the year where it's set to cross three trillion. Pandemic slowed that down a little bit. But so it's a three trillion economy in five years. So the same curve. So why is that? And I think that's because India, for different reasons, has urbanization, has a population that's again very enterprising, um, a massive consumer base, uh, massive financial inclusion. About three hundred million people open bank accounts just uh, in the last four years, five years. Um, and so India becomes another massive growth driver of the world. That makes it very important. But I think also importantly, if it is a massive growth driver, if it is an economic base, an, uh, an economic force, then there is a, another economic force in Asia next to China. Um, now, unfortunately, what that also does is, you know, you saw the power of the world move, John, from Europe to America, and we see it moving to Asia because you have two countries there that represent nearly three billion people. Um, by, by 2050, and, and already it's edging in that direction. But Asia is 50% of the world's population. Um, in terms of global GDP, purchasing power, share of trade, world output, energy consumption, you know, it's already 40 to 50% of all those things. And by 2050, the projections say 50 to 60%. And you know, it's, it's also by 2050 expected at 50% of therefore foreign investment, financial assets, and military spend. So the axis is moving. The, the big question mark for America would be, 
you know, how do you ally now with the rising powers, given that you've been really the older brother of those rising powers? India's an easy and natural one, and long-standing relationships um, with India, certainly, you know, you see so many Indians in America that are successful, and you see so much trade between the two. Ketan, can you talk to us a little bit about the mega trends that you're seeing sure. in the context of that power structure? Sure. And what it means for business and what it means for geopolitics. Sure. So, I mean, Anthony, I, I think we're at a very <coughs> privileged and unusual time. We're in the transition of great powers. Um, I mean, if you take a big sweep of history, I know that uh, a number of your presidents in the past have spoken about the arc of history and where it's going. But, you know, if you really take that and say, you know, where are we today and why does it feel so uncomfortable? I think one of the reasons is we're in the transition of real civilizations from industrial civilizations to an information-aid civilization. You know, we all grew up with our parents working in factories. And, you know, our children will work in technology and finance and services. And so this is a massive transition of just employment, work ethic, knowledge bases, and no wonder it's, it feels uncomfortable because when that happens, of course, the, the old power structure hangs on, the manufacturers, the political power that's allied to the land and to production hangs on to power and there's a conflict. So one of the great forces of change is of course that. I think the second is that in the transition, also the number of people have gone up. So you know, we've, around the Second World War, there would have been about two and a half billion people in the world. Today, there's seven and a half billion. By 2050, nearly 10 billion. So you know, we have a need to, to strip more and more resources from the planet. And without enough invention, reinvention, if you like, of those resources or an access to you know, something else, um, we're asset stripping the planet. So of course, this is a, an era where you go from, it was 6.2 billion, I think, at the beginning of the century. By 2050, we add another 40% more people. So we're gonna asset strip the planet unless we, we make massive breakthroughs in science. Uh, the third big factor is the carbon age has delivered everything it can in terms of our, our ability to create value. Now it needs something else. And that isn't probably just solar. There's something else. Uh, and at, at every point of the change in history of civilizations, there's a breakthrough in energy sources. So it may be something solar. It may be something nuclear that isn't uranium, but something more functional, something that allows us to, to put a man on, or a civilization on another planet that isn't, you know, isn't the moon. It's a, it's another planet, but it's, it's something much more functional. And that happens at every point when civilizations change. I think the fourth is the flow of mankind almost into one culture, because the internet, for the first time, we're all connected, completely connected, real time through the internet. And people are watching this in any part of the world they choose to. Um, we communicate with each other through social media. We get our news from social media. You know, we get so much value creation out of social media and on the internet. So we're moving to one culture, whether we like it or not. And people will hold back and say, oh, I'm peculiarly not a global citizen, I'm just this. But you're that and a global citizen because of the internet. And then finally, we're potentially in the transition of the US as the sole great power to the natural cycle in history of the US sharing power. Or if it doesn't manage that well, another power taking over. And I've got to say, as somebody who's worked and lived and has so many friends in the US and has studied this for so long, there isn't a natural, another country to take over. 
America has the system of enterprise. You know, it has enough of the moral code that is shared by the majority of the world. So there isn't somebody natural to take it over. America will almost have to throw it away. And I think populism does that. Populism is, is very nationalistically micro and it throws away power. And so you know, we're, we're at that stage in history. And these are some of the, the big macro challenges. I'll uh, some of the business ones too in a moment, but please uh, interject. No, but I, I, I just want to follow up on the populism thing because in, in 1963, yeah. Teddy White asked Jacqueline Kennedy what was on the president's bedstand the week that he died. What was he reading? And it, it turned out it was The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman, and it rose to become a very big bestseller. And I read it in college. And The Guns of August talks about the systemic rise of nationalism yeah. in Europe, which led to The Guns of August, the advent of the First World War and the bellicosity of rhetoric and the reasons why nationalism caught fire. Now, you and I study history. Uh, a lot of the things that are going on globally were happening, let's say 1915 to 1935. Mm -hmm. uh, and there seems to be a vacuum of leadership around the world where leaders, instead of explaining what's happening from a historical context and moving populations away from this nonsense are sort of acting like thermometers, Kitan. Mm -hmm. They're, they're yeah. putting their finger up in the air, they're measuring the heat, and then they're reflecting back the heat to their populations. One, do you agree with that? Number two, is there a way to change that? Is there a way to dent history and prevent this sort of rolling catastrophe from happening? So. Um, actually, I, I know you love reading history, so I get completely where you're coming from. I, I would say this, that you know, despite the prosperity, the peace, and the freedoms created in, you know, since the Second World War, which, as I said, America has been an enormous part, the EU has been an enormous part, and Asia has followed uh, that lead, um, we also created enormous inequities. So there's a real gap between people in the world, between countries, but also within countries, between those that have are real beneficiaries of the fruits of progress and those that are not. So, you know, our financial and capital model is not delivered to enough people. Let me give just throw out some numbers. So, you know, today we have seven and a half billion people. Two thirds of those people are not real participants in the banking system. So, you know, it's, it's odd because, I mean, here's, here's also the numbers drilling a little bit more. So about a billion of, of the seven and a half billion don't have any bank account whatsoever. Uh, another billion um, only access credit using their credit card. So, so they're some sort of participant. But, you know, they're paying the 24%, 26% APR interest. Two billion people have a bank account that they've never, ever borrowed from. Yep. 3.6 billion people have not got or not used a bank account, physical or, or, for, or any payment system from their mobile phone. So, you know, two thirds of the world are not participants or the beneficiaries, the endpoint beneficiaries of the industrial revolution, of formal employment, and of the financial system that all of us on this call are a beneficiary of. At some point, they were going to say, not good enough. Now, the temptation is to imagine those are all in poor countries, and 85 to 90% of the two thirds are. But let me say this, you know, so when you look at a population of a country, 
it does actually go like that. But 32% of Americans also fall in that category of don't have a bank account, you know, have a bank account they've never used, um, have managed to get some credit at a usury rate. So that, that's not right. You know, you can't have a third of Americans not participating in the system. So they were ripe for three things that happened simultaneously. One is, as I said, that the backdrop is we're transitioning civilization, so we're transitioning jobs. They're, gonna, they're not going to have a high-quality job. Number two, the social, social media connects us all. And number three, populism. So if you, have a if you have a confusing scenario, you have a lot of people who are unhappy, and you have leaders who see the opportunity to be popular rather than be right. But the truth doesn't matter but only, you only tell people what they want to hear, and that gets you enormous power, then there's always going to be some people who are going to rise to, to that bait. And all across the world, you know, people have, particularly in the West, but it is in lots of places. And the social media allows you to spread confusion where you know, uh, opinion supersedes expertise. All the fruits of the Industrial Revolution were, were that we were seeking a better explanation for how the world works to solve problems. But with social media, with populism, you know, the truth is masked by opinion. Now, we'll get through that phase. I'm confident we will. Uh, and when we do, of course, you know, the scenario will get better. But in the transition, until we solve for it, we are where we are. And so today's peace, prosperity, and freedom is under threat from this way of governing. Katan, you talk about peace, prosperity, and freedom, and that's really what most of your policy work is centered around. And I want you, if you will, to draw upon your experience growing up in London's East End. We're obviously grappling with a lot of social issues and social divisions uh, in this country, but it's not unique to the United States for certain. Um, you know, in, in London, there's, there's a different mix of ethnicities and, and there's race issues as well. Could you just talk about, again, your experience growing up in the East End of London and how you think socially uh, the United States, London, and elsewhere, we can start to create that more integrated global society where we have fewer inequities based on things like race and religion. Sure. That's a tough one um, and, a, and a painful one in some ways. But um, So I, I grew up at a time when Britain was in the aftermath of not being an empire. And there was a feeling still of entitlement. You know, we ran the world feeling we're still alive and well. Um, and with the influx of immigration from across the old, you know, far-flung places of the empire, it also fed, of course, some resentment and the rise of the far right. Um, and there were politicians who were very capable of, of you know, making sure they threw fire on that and causing problems, lots and lots of problems. And so, you know, um, I would say that the politicians that played on fear that's what I saw was very dangerous because there was a fear of the loss of your job. And you know, if you, you, you know this and I know this because we run businesses, you either grow the revenue line or you keep complaining about the costs. Complaining about the cost is all about the fear. You know, it requires somebody of imagination to grow the pie so that all of us can participate. And so you know, what I saw was the fear was played on. When the politicians played on the fear and played on our differences, in a very practical sense, the implication is, unfortunately, that the immigrants are bad. The consequence is children get beaten up in playgrounds. I would guess since 
you started to talk about your country, or certain people in your country started to talk about Mexicans being bad people, um, Mexican children are getting beaten up in playgrounds. I mean, it's, the consequences are real and they affect children. And they affect their parents on the streets and it causes hatred and violence. So, but it takes real leaders not to fall into that way of leading, but to embrace the system. And it's not to say that people shouldn't have borders that they control, of course you do. You control your border for many, many reasons. Um, but that way of politics was, was what I saw growing up. That pact was broken though in the UK. And it was broken because the UK joined the EU and there was influx of Europeans who weren't colored, right, so mostly. So people stopped seeing immigrants as always being colored and they saw immigrants of all colors, uh, but lots of white immigrants. And it changed the UK dramatically, but it changed, I think, the big cities even more. So there was a lot of prosperity, you know, the UK was part of the great trading block just next door. It led to enormous diversity, but also it reversed lots and lots of the kind of hatred and divisions that were there. Unfortunately, it came back during the Brexit, um, where hate again became acceptable. Politicians again, you know, used disparaging language towards minority groups, um, white and colored, um, and it's very sad to see. I'm afraid, John. Uh, and what I saw was every time you have a politician who thinks that their job is to just lead a faction rather than lead the whole, you have this problem. And the way ahead, I think in some ways, is ever so simple and yet seems ever so elusive right now. It's someone who represents the people, all the people, not just their faction. Here we are today where politicians are calculating which states am I gonna win? Which cities do I need to win? Can I get a margin of 1% or 2% just in the right, you know, just an extra few thousand votes, just in three centers or five? How awful is that? Well, we've sunk to that when actually, you know, there was a time, and I think it still is the time, for people to say, I lead everybody. And we're here to lead the whole population. That's what we need to see in America in the next election. We need to see somebody step up who says, I lead you all, regardless of whatever you believe, regardless of your position in the old industries or the new, whether you're rich or poor, you know, we're here for everybody. And so I think the US's problem is you're not united. And you know, the United Kingdom's problem is we're not united. Those are the things we need to solve really. Well, Katan, we're gonna leave it with that, uh, with that inspiring message. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, we, we could talk for two hours about all the different uh, issues facing the world and how to address them. And I hope we'll have a chance to have you back, not only at one of our in-person SALT conferences, but maybe on a future SALT talk as well to follow up on a lot of what we talked about. And, and maybe uh, early next year in 2021, we'll be on a path to maybe leadership that's a little bit more unifying. Uh, that, that would be our hope. So thanks so much for joining us. Look forward to it. It's great, great to have you on, Katana. We'll, we'll see you. you soon. I've got, a, I've got a ton of questions for you, but for some reason, every time I leave a call with you, I learn more, but I'm also optimistic. I think we can, I think we can settle these things. I'm, I'm, I'm confident that we can uh, find that bridge to build things. And uh, thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me.